Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we delve into the futuristic world of brain-computer interfaces, and we also look at what's new on the Physics World website. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by GNBKL Group, a world-class manufacturer of vacuum hardware, including chambers, valves, and components. Make sure you watch their online game show, Will It Bloat?, where they place everyday objects, such as a hot dog, a chocolate Easter bunny, and even an air cylinder into a vacuum chamber to see if they bloat. You can watch America's favorite vacuum show at www.vacuumchamber.com. In this week's in-depth interview, Physics World's Tammy Freeman meets the chief neuroscientist of a U.S.-based company that's developing a brain-computer interface operating system with the aim of increasing human agency. Brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs, are devices that record electrical activity from the human brain and use these signals to control an external device. Their main application is to restore abilities such as movement or communication to people with neurological disorders or injuries. AE Studio, a data science company based in Los Angeles, is developing machine learning algorithms for use in BCIs with a mission to create software that increases human agency. I'm speaking today with Sumner Norman, Chief Neuroscientist at AE Studio, to find out more about this ambitious goal. Hello, Sumner. Good to be here, Tammy. So first of all, can you just give a quick description of how a brain-computer interface works? Sure, I, I think you actually nailed the main points already. So it's really quite a simple device when you actually think about it. You need something that's going to extract signals from the brain. So when neurons in your brain are active, they're creating electromagnetic signals, they're causing changes in hemodynamics. So there are actually quite a few different sources of contrast that are developed in a physiological way. So once you have a way to interact with the physics that are associated with those physiological mechanisms, you can extract that information from the brain. Once you do that, you have to interpret it. And that's usually the really hard part. So the brain is obviously full of up to 80 billion neurons, which have up to 1,000 synapses each. So it's an incredibly complex piece of machinery, if you will. In fact, there are more neurons in your brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So actually interpreting that information becomes a really complex uh, problem. So we use machine learning algorithms typically these days to actually decode that information off of the chip usually or off of whatever is recording the information from the brain, although many devices are starting to do some of that processing even in the device itself. And then you have to, once you interpret that activity, use it. And this becomes maybe the easy part, maybe not so much. So it can be as simple as just recording or uh, controlling a cursor on a screen and interacting with a computer as we know it. Or you can scale that up to interacting with robotic limbs, um, all sorts of really anything the mind can imagine. 
So, so nowadays, what's the main focus of BCI research? I mean, what can a state-of-the-art BCI achieve now? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that in recent years, as I'm sure you know, many of these efforts have actually started to translate out of academia and into industry. And so there's almost two lines of research that are happening. One that's more developmental and commercialization in industry. And those are really centered around new form factors for electrode-based technologies. So sensing electrical activity from the brain and often the most high-performance BCIs are intracortical meaning that you've actually implanted electrodes into the cortex itself. So BlackRock Neurotech um, has had a device that's been implanted in over 30 humans over the last 15 years or so. Um, and they're starting to develop a lot of the kind of just more commercialization aspects. And we can talk about that in a minute. There are some kind of interesting companies out there like Synchron, who is uh, actually solving the delivery problem. How do you actually get electrodes into the brain by using our existing vasculature? And so this is a really kind of unique approach where they insert a stent into your vasculature that then kind of snakes its way up into your brain and, and implants itself very close to the motor cortex. Neuralink, for example, I think many people have heard of this, Elon Musk company, um, they're using very fine wire electrodes, an extremely high channel count, so they can create a fully implantable and fully wireless system. So it's really an engineering kind of tour de force. On the academic side, uh, kind of going back now, a lot of new sensing modalities, so moving away from electrodes, there's some really interesting research. Um, optically pumped magnetometry is a really fun one for physicists, I think. Uh, so that's going to sense the magnetic field that's generated by neurons firing or large populations of neurons firing together, at least. Um, some of my research has worked on ultrasound to detect the actual in the motion of individual red blood cells that are kind of evolving over time in a metabolic response to neural activity. Um, and then as we talked about a minute ago, these advanced algorithms. So a lot of machine learning to interpret more complex brain states and new types of tasks and different types of activities and, and uh, applications that a user is gonna care about. Okay, so um, you've mentioned BlackRock Neurotech and um, earlier this year, AE Studio announced a collaboration with them. Now, they're aiming to release the first commercial BCI platform next year. What will this platform do and what's your company's role in the partnership? Yeah, so BlackRock is coming from a really interesting place where the technology that they use is an electrode array that, again, is kind of implanted in the, in the brain itself. And it's been around for actually quite a long time, about 20 years or so. Um, first came out of University of Utah, hence the name Utah Array and um, developed by Richard Norman, and then sort of over the last 20 years been developed in academia. So it has a very long track record uh, of safety and success. And now their goal is to package that into something that people with severe forms of paralysis, things like late stage ALS, spinal cord injury, and so on, so that those people can control devices. And so one of their platforms is called Move Again. And I think it's, it's right there in the name. The idea is to give people with paralysis the ability to move again, which is an incredibly agency increasing thing. Um, the way that they're doing this is, I, as I mentioned before, you of course wanna be able to control a normal computerized device. So that's gonna look a little bit more like a cursor on a screen, the interfaces that we're familiar with. One application that's really quite interesting um, that came out of a group at Stanford, Krishna Shanoi's group at Stanford, and a paper by Frank Willett is, is really one of my favorite approaches, 
that rather than decoding the intended direction of a person, which is actually a quite slow signal, if you imagine moving a joystick around to like type uh, letters on a screen, you know, you have to do this on your TV quite often, that can be quite frustrating and slow. Um, but one of the things that you can decode really with incredible fidelity using a BCI is handwriting. And so these are, again, paralyzed patients who haven't been able to move sometimes in decades or four decades. And in the BCI device, they will actually intend or, or try to write as they remember writing before they were paralyzed. And you can actually decode that information almost as fast. And when I say almost, I mean it is almost exactly the same as fast as you or I or any unimpaired person could write. And so this is actually an incredibly fast form of communication, especially for someone who wants to communicate written text, but it takes a very long time. That's really clever. So rather than sort of having to move a cursor to letters on a keyboard, they just imagine handwriting and it, it comes exactly from that. Right. Yep, wow. That's exactly right. And is this what you mean by, um, you know, developing software to increase human agency? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what, what we really mean by increasing human agency is a few things. In the near term, I think it's, it's really kind of sort of obvious. We, people that have lost function or motor function in this case, as we're talking about as an example, have lost the agency over the control of their body. So it's really quite straightforward. Um, now, in the past, academic labs have really optimized for publication, or that, that's still true. Um, and their mission is not necessarily to create a fantastic product. It's to come up with these fantastic ideas like handwriting. But once the proof of principle is there, it's not usually in their best interest to develop that, you know, to the nth degree. And that's where AE Studio really comes in is to make scalable and robust techniques built on the, the you know, we're really building on the shoulders of giants here. And that, what I mean by that is from academics that have come up with wonderful ideas and we want to bring those ideas into a reliable uh, BCI that potentially millions of people can come to use and trust. Um, and then most importantly, perhaps, we then tailor those things to user needs. So we use good data science practices to improve the performance of the device. So people are getting the absolute most they can out of it. But we also want to improve the user experience at every level. So faster and less frequent calibration, so people spend more time handwriting, for example, and less time training a decoder. Um, models that adapt quickly to the user, so as their brain is changing or they're developing new skills. Um, the models that train quickly and that work over many days. This is actually a big problem in BCI, that models tend to need to be kind of constantly recalibrated to the person. And AE really feels like we're well positioned using good data science practice to stabilize those models over long periods of time. Um, going back to your question around human agency in the long term. So every technology, every new technology comes with big possible downsides. So BCI is no exception to that. And we want to be very aware of those even early on. So everyone has sort of um, kind of become keenly aware of technology companies' interests in your focus. So when you get on a news feed or a scroll, you kind of get stuck there and you call it doom scrolling, right? So the question that AE, or one of many questions that AE likes to pose is what happens when that type of focus is now directly measurable and or directly controllable through a BCI? Well, you have to be quite careful of the future where technology is in the wrong hands effectively. You want this technology in the hands 
of responsible actors. And what we believe that that means is, is not just in AE's hands, but in the community's hands. And so, um, you know, going back to one point earlier about models being difficult to train, these machine learning algorithms benefit from huge amounts of data, many people. So, for example, how do you pool the knowledge gained from thousands or millions of users without compromising their privacy? And so we're thinking about very clever ways of protecting user data, but also being able to share these complex models and update them with the community use cases. And we also want to build with the community, and that includes both academics and commercial groups and users themselves, patients these days and in the future, perhaps less impaired or unimpaired people, building with them to create devices that are built with the user first and foremost with user data privacy right in the forefront where it's obvious, transparent, and repeated regularly, um, where user data is, is encrypted and kept behind firewalls and ideally never even leaves the person's device. So these are the sorts of principles that we're putting together now and just getting started on what that means in software. Okay, and, and so you've, we've talked about the sort of this potential first commercial application, which is you know the idea of um, thinking handwriting and, and sort of allowing people to communicate. What sort of other applications do you see that sort of might possibly become clinically used in the next few years? In the short term, the big uh, move forward is in higher channel counts and fully implanted systems. So that becomes actually quite important. So I mentioned earlier companies like Neuro, uh, Neuralink, Synchron, BlackRock, Precision Neuro, um, Paradromics, and many others are all working on this type of problem. So some incredibly brilliant minds. Once you have those high channel counts, remember those 80 billion neurons? Well, a Utah array is only recording from maybe a couple hundred at a time on a good day. So being able to record from thousands of neurons or potentially tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands starts to open up much bigger possibilities around just the type of fidelity for motor uh, uh, intention that you can actually decode. So right now it might be something simple like a cursor or, or at the kind of bleeding edge is the ability to decode something like handwriting. But decoding entire body movement, intention, speech, for example, is, is right on the cusp of something that we can sort of do today quite well, but it's not really quite ready for commercialization yet. So decoding intended speech for people that uh, have difficulty with it, like late stage ALS. Um, decoding silent speech for people that just want to communicate silently with all of technology or each other. Um, so those are some of the kind of most immediate right on the cusp things. Some other things uh, that are maybe in the medium term are new technology types. So less invasive uh, technologies. So stimulation things like transcranial magnetic stimulation is actually starting to grow in clinical adoption and its efficacy, for example, in treating depression. Um, there's a company doing EEG-based rehabilitation. So this is motor rehab for people who've had a stroke. Um, and, and so this is a non-invasive BCI. There's ultrasonic sensing from outside the brain, but implanted inside the skull. So that's kind of a middle ground of invasivity, but also detecting really high bandwidth signals. And then in the long term, where, where you know, my mind sort of likes to go is, how do you actually start to get nanomaterials that move through the body or bloodstream, which, you know, solving this insertion problem, which is a big one. Um, how do you combine with other types of engineering, genetic and molecular engineering? So you can amplify the ability of these technologies to now, instead of sensing kind of broad signals, start to sense individual cells 
or particular cell types that are associated with certain disease forms. Um, and you can do that throughout the brain entirely rather than just in the kind of, you know, tiny scope of an electrode. Um, now you start to open up the ability to deliver drugs uh, to very targeted regions with no side effects. I mean, the possibilities sort of become endless. And that's really the most exciting thing about neurotechnology is we're just at the beginning. Excellent. Well, it looks like there's a lot of interesting research to come. I particularly like the idea of the sort of the non-invasive um, reading and control over over the brain. I think that's that could be particularly interesting, couldn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's always going to come with some limitations. So, you know, this is a physics podcast. So going back to first principles there, ultimately the size of the magnetic fields are in the femtotesla range and the size of the electrical dipoles are in the microvolts range. And so once you, once you think about femtotesla signals in microtesla environments, because we're dealing with the Earth's magnetic field, these signals become very, very difficult to suss out. So within controlled environments, for example, a kind of acute treatment for depression in a clinic where you can have a magnetically shielded room or, you know, kind of complicated setup with canceling magnetic fields, active fields, those sorts of um, approaches work really well. But in terms of something that everyone can walk around with every day, always there with them doing its work over long periods of time, and many applications in the brain require that, um, those most likely are going to be still sticking to that invasive or implanted, at least, form factor. Excellent. And I guess there it's the sort of the ability to implant these less invasively, that it's sort of that will be where the development will, will sort of benefit people most. I think that's right. These days, electrodes um, do come with some risks. So implanting them in the brain itself does actually damage brain tissue, not a great deal, but it, you know, not to the degree that you'll have a deficit, but it is still actually interacting with the brain tissue itself. Ideally, we'd never have to do that. We could be outside of the brain entirely and specifically outside of the meninges. This includes the dura mater, which is a kind of leathery protective membrane that sits around your brain and actually holds all of the cerebrospinal fluid in and all of the nasty bacteria and sources of infection out. And of course, the last thing any of us want is um, a central nervous system level of infection. That, you know, these are really dangerous infections. And so if you can make the surgery so simple that it's effectively you know, plugging a hole in the skull but never touching the brain, this becomes a one or two hour outpatient procedure and looks a lot less like brain surgery. That's, I think, where the future starts to expand because the user base now becomes not just people who have severe forms of paralysis and therefore have brain tissue that's not necessarily uh, innervating their peripheral limbs anymore. And so a little bit of damage isn't meaningful. The risk is sort of worth it because they have a severe form of disease or, or injury. But once you get to these like kind of low cost scenarios in terms of how difficult it is to implant, but then even mild to moderate improvements in quality of life start to make a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's fantastic potential. That's something to certainly keep an eye on. Well, you know, thanks very much for speaking with us today. It's been really interesting. Oh, it's absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Sumner Norman in conversation with Tammy Freeman. And there's lots more on the Physics World website about brain-computer interfaces. 
Earlier this year, an international team of scientists used an implanted BCI to enable a person with complete paralysis to communicate, suggesting that verbal communication with such devices could one day be possible for patients in a completely locked-in state. To find out more, look for the headline, Brain Implant Allows Person with Complete Paralysis to Communicate. Elsewhere on the website, there's a fascinating feature article by the physicist and traffic collision expert Michael Hall. He explains how insurance investigators use Newtonian physics to work out if someone has put in a bogus claim for a road traffic accident. Hall begins by describing a scam that involves several passengers on a bus. They were colluding with the driver of a car, which crashed into the bus on purpose. The passengers then put in injury claims, but thanks to the bus's onboard event data recorder and a bit of physics, Hall and colleagues worked out that the acceleration of the bus during the collision was so small that the claimed injuries simply could not have happened. Apparently, 6% of all motor insurance claims in the UK are crash-for-cash scams, which keeps experts like Hall busy. In his article, he explains the importance of determining the coefficient of restitution for a collision. This is a measure of how elastic the collision was, and it plays an important role in determining whether someone was subject to an acceleration that's large enough to cause whiplash. Hall's article is called Using Newton's Law to Weed Out Bogus Car Crash Claims, and you can find it on the Physics World website. Now, as far as I know, quantum computers have yet to be used to weed out bogus insurance claims, but perhaps they could come in handy in multi-vehicle collisions when the equations get a bit hairy. For the time being, though, the quantum computer industry is still trying to work out which technologies are best suited for building practical systems. In a wide-ranging interview, the vice president of Microsoft Quantum, Krista Swarey, talks about the tech giant's efforts towards creating scalable quantum computers. She explains why the company believes that topological qubits are the way forward and also talks about Microsoft's Azure Quantum, which allows users to run the same code on five different quantum computing platforms. You can find that interview on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Democratizing the Quantum Ecosystem. Now, do you think photonics is important? If your answer is no, our business columnist James McKenzie would like a quiet word. In his latest column, Mackenzie points out that in the UK, the photonics industry employs twice as many people as the country's pharmaceutical firms, and more than either the space or financial technology sectors. And it's not just good business. UK universities account for 20% of global publications on photonics. From the latest imaging systems used by optometrists to the LiDAR systems used to boost the output of wind farms, Mackenzie says that the benefits of photonics are all around us. You can find his latest column on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, The Power of Photonics. 
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by GNBKL. Do check out their video series, Will It Bloat, at www.vacuumchamber.com. Thanks to Sumner Norman and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at the legacy of the renowned Indian film director and polymath Satyajit Ray. Host Andrew Glester speaks to Ray's biographer, Andrew Robinson, and the biophysicist Momita Dasgupta about how science influenced Ray's work and how the director has inspired both scientists and filmmakers. Physics World.